You like to read? Keeps me occupied. Mm. What? Is a book? It's a... Um... It's called The Tin Soldier. It's a bunch of malarkey. sister sends them to me because I used to enjoy them. You don't anymore? Mm. It occurred to me the basis of fiction is that people have some sort of connection with each other. Mm. But they don't. Hello. And welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. My name is Sean T. Collins, and I am a television critic for such publications as Rolling Stone, The New York Times, Vulture, and Decider. And I am the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse, which is available right now for purchase. And joining me is my illustrious co-host. Hi, I'm Gretchen Felker-Martin, film critic and horror author. My first novel, Manhunt, is forthcoming from Tor Nightfire next year. And you have just heard a line from Boardwalk Empire, spoken by the character Richard Harrow, from the episode Home, which was written by Tim Van Patten and Paul Sims. And we're starting our podcast, our very first episode with this line, because Gretchen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel this may be the single best line of dialogue ever written. Question mark? That is, that is my opinion. The first time that I heard it, I paused the show and I walked away for like 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I felt like someone had just put a knife through my entire experience of the world. Yeah, I was revisiting the scene in preparation for the episode and and trying to put myself back in that headspace because this aired in... 2010 or something like that, which is amazing to think about. Yeah, and, I hadn't well, even graduated from college yet. Wow. And um, man, that's old. Man, whew, what a line to hear in college. For me, Boardwalk Empire was not a show that I was being... I don't think at that time it was a show that I was being paid to write about. It was just a kind of sensual ritual that I went through every Sunday night. You know, it was the Sunday, it's in the Sunday night prestige TV time slot. So you make room for it on your calendar. It's appointment viewing. And I would get a good beer and sit back and just kind of soak in the period ambiance and the costumes and the voices and everything that made Borwick Empire a really rich viewing experience. 
And when you watch this scene, as I did today, it's remarkable how they do not lean on this extremely heavy line. There's not a cut to the reaction shot of Jimmy Darmody, played by Michael Pitt, the other character in the scene, as Richard Harrow, who's played by Jack Houston, says this line to him. The camera just cuts halfway down the hallway as the action continues. It's it's really passed over. But I'm sitting and watching it. I remember thinking, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Like, this was a thought that I had not allowed myself to think that at all. That cut is so beautiful, too, because, I mean, it, it's a very simple statement in visual language. He says that there's no connection between people and the camera pulls away. That is true. That is true. I mean, there's a lot of little details in the scene that are extraordinary, I think. Like the the book that engenders this conversation there, just to set the scene, Richard Harrow is a very badly disfigured veteran of World War I. And right, he bumps- he's lost half his face to a sniper's bullet. Right. And he has to wear a facial prosthetic over it that's held on by his glasses. Right. And he meets Jimmy Darmody, who's a character who was traumatized by the war but and has an injury, but nothing on the level of what Richard is going through. And they're waiting for their basically their psych eval uh, at a veteran's hospital. And that's how they meet. And Richard is just sort of walking past Jimmy, and he notices that Jimmy is reading a book and asks him, you know, do you like to read? What's the book? And the book is called The Tin Soldier, and his mask is made of tin. And later on in the show, he kind of wins over the children of Margaret Schroeder, who he comes to kind of be a bodyguard for, by saying he's the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz as she's reading The Wizard of Oz to them, which is just a beautiful little detail. And there's lots of little stuff that pays off like that. But that camera cut, like, yeah, there's no this this is just a this is just something this guy is saying. It doesn't necessarily register to a character like Jimmy Darmody, who has learned firsthand the danger of human connection. Right. You know, every relationship he's ever had has been malformed and exploitative. And then he went through World War One. And I feel like there, there's so much television set in that period, you know, Downton Abbey and innumerable other things. But Boardwalk Empire is the only show that really feels like it's happening right after World War One. Yeah. Because the entire show is like this world where meaning has completely fallen apart in the space of a few years. Yeah, and, and they make, you know, fairly explicit a connection between the violence of the trenches and the violence of prohibition, right. which stands to reason. I mean, a lot of the people who are involved in bootlegging and and organized crime you know, are of the age where they would have had experience in, in, in the war. And that's certainly the case for Jimmy and eventually Richard, who Jimmy kind of enlists as his right-hand man and gun for hire uh, in his own criminal enterprises. One of the interesting things about this scene is that you have these two characters connecting and relating to each other on a pretty intense and intimate level. Like, immediately after really immediately after meeting Jimmy, Richard is going into his bag and pulling out this German sniper mask that he retrieved from a sniper who he killed, who he had to wait three days to kill because the mask was always down. He had to wait until he lifted it to scratch his nose. uh, And then he shot him in the face. And it's like, he's throwing him his security blanket, like within, um, like within five minutes of meeting the guy. And 
I think that's interesting because they're waiting to have a psychological evaluation, but they're doing that themselves. You know, they're they're kind of certainly by the time this episode is over, you basically know what Richard Harrow's damage is, and you know what it has left him really the only thing that he is capable of doing anymore in the world is killing people. And he's exceedingly good at it. And you get this from a conversation in the waiting room. You don't actually need the psych eval. You don't actually need a psychiatrist to be walking you through what these people are feeling and what their damage is. Like, right. Just- it's so elegantly established. And I feel like Jack Houston's body language in that role is so tight and so controlled and precise. You can instantly tell that he is incredibly competent but at one very specific thing. Right. Because he has no, it's not that he doesn't have charisma because his voice is that raspy, like tar and broken glass growl. And obviously his face is arresting, but he doesn't, he doesn't fill up a room. No, he doesn't, he doesn't project. He's withdrawn into himself. He's, he's sort of aurally small Mm -hmm. and still you cannot mistake your impression of him. It's one of the best character introductions I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, You know, even aside from the, from that specific line, you know, one thing that the show does lean on heavily is later on in the episode, in the course of talking to Jimmy at a, at a bar slash brothel, I think, I believe Jimmy asks him what kind of gun, what gun he owns or what kind of guns he owns. And he lists like 20 of them, Yeah, you know, and you're like, oh, oh, yeah. oh, this, this is a dangerous man that we've just met, but it's the... It is that archetype that, as you know, I love so much, which is the man who's sad about how good he is at killing people. <laughs> right, right. The hound. The hound. And I, I react to that so strongly. I don't know why. I don't know why I react to that so strongly. Why would I? Re- why am I so drawn to like the, the Mike Ehrman Trouts of the world? Why? Well, they've always been favorites of mine, too. And I'll, I'll tell you my pet psychological theory that I've, I've analyzed myself with. I am also a person who is extremely good at only one thing. And I'm also still a person who's fucking miserable. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that what I'm good at is like making up a story about gay vampires and what Richard Harrow is good at is murdering German children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that is it. It's like, I don't know. I mean, on a certain level, I'm sure it's, it's a kind of decency fantasy, right? Like we, we want to believe that killers have some sort of innate core of, of goodness or of warmth or of, nobility yeah in them and 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 we want to see that come like it's a it's a challenge that the the story presents us with it's like that you almost feel enlisted in like can we extract the humanity from this character and bring it to the surface can we reach in with our fucking fingers extended 
into their brains and just grab the like the innards of the the jack-o'-lantern you know right and just right. pull that out and make this person whole again right and it, it, it you really know does. what is what is gonna make mike quit and just stay at home with his granddaughter and his right. daughter-in-law what is gonna send richard to his family home with with his eventual girlfriend julia and his adopted son tommy instead yeah. of where he where he goes instead what will make the hound give up a life of violence and and join a religious order and retreat to an island where he quietly tends the fields or whatever and here i actually have a more serious piece of analysis for why these characters are so appealing let's hear it i think that for people like you and i who have been through some very difficult painful things in our life who have been you know, victims of violence or of abuse. We would love to believe that the people who did that to us feel bad about it. Yeah. That it haunts them. And and that's a, that's a very painful fantasy to carry because it's not true. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 you know, thinking about it rationally, uh, the person who abused me when I was a kid, I can't imagine that they've thought about me in years. Why would they? Right. Why would they? It was just the thing that they did. Maybe not for the last time, maybe not for the first time. I don't know. And, you know, they went on to have a a normal life, as far as I know, with a family. And why would they think of me anymore? Why would they? Why would they? I guess they don't. But Richard is haunted. Right. Richard is haunted. And then there's that beautiful confrontation that he has with the main character of the show played by Steve Buscemi, Nucky Thompson, several seasons later, where he, Richard becomes outraged that another gangster is taking credit for the killing that Richard himself committed. He finds that gauche to the extreme because that means something to him. What he did means something to him. And Nucky asks him, how many people have you killed? And he says, 63. And Nucky says, do you ever think about any of them? And he just says, you know the answer to that yourself. Yeah. And that's what you want to be- You want to believe that the people who've done terrible things to you or to anybody think about it. Of course, the truth is, and this is from a show that is, is often compared to Boardwalk Empire and which uh, Boardwalk Empire showrunner Terrence Winter worked on extensively, The Sopranos. There's a great conversation early on in that where Christopher Moltisanti, who's a young gangster bucking to get his stripes and become a made man, performs his first hit Mm -hmm. and starts to have nightmares about it. And he goes to an older mafioso and tells him about it. And he says, oh, yeah, that happens. You know, this the first prick I did chased me around for a month in my dreams. But uh, do more of them and it goes away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's the truth you know you just immure yourself inside this antisocial violent behavior and it becomes a new normal in situations like this with this character we're reaching for an honesty about who they are and what they do that we're not often presented with in in real life i think you know like richard even literally says 
when Jimmy encourages him to lie in the exam, if there's a question that's embarrassing to him, he says, just lie. And Richard says, I find that difficult now. And there's something appealing about that too. You know, these men, Richard and the hound and Mike Ehrmantraut and, you know, God knows who else like they're, they know who they are. They're not in denial. And I think there's something that we also want to believe that that's the case. You know, like we just, we just don't want them to be in denial about what they do and who they are and what they've done. Like you almost cling to that, like that idea that like they recognize their own nature. I think that circles around pretty neatly to what I was talking about. You know, we would, we would love to see self-awareness from the people who've hurt us. It's, it's very compelling to see people who are violent and destructive express that. Yeah. I think of it sort of as analogous to like the fictive trope of the genius serial killer, like Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. In reality, serial killers are usually pretty Absolute. idiots. Yeah. They're dullards. Right. They're unintelligent, not terribly creative. And generally kind of slow and unpleasant to be around. You know, there are exceptions. There's you've got your Ed Kempers and stuff, but mm-hmm. Hannibal's a fantasy because we see these appalling, hideous things and we want to believe that there's some kind of design behind them. That even if the engine is, you know, slick and black and alien and we can't really figure out what it's doing, it's beautiful. Right. And internally coherent and the reality is like well it's more like a rat eating a corpse (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just vermin fighting like that's it yeah and that's the thing that you know about this is that even though richard is a a fantastical character in the sense that he is exhibiting qualities that we wish we would see in similar people in real life this line this specific line of dialogue is just a a rejection of that whole idea, right? Like he's the character who puts into words your worst fear that the whole idea that you do have, you're able to connect and relate to people and, and, and have meaningful experiences with them that you take with you. Right. To know and be known, always connect. Right. Right. Uh, it, It, and that it's that it's bogus, that it's bullshit, and just to hear that dropped on you on a fucking Sunday night at nine fifteen or whatever it was, like, and then you go to work the next day, like, excuse me, yeah, oof, it's um, it's the kind of thing that keeps people up at night and then mm-hmm. animates like anxiety disorders that destroy people's entire lives the fear that they will never connect to another person and the hard barrier of consciousness of, of my thoughts and my body and yours and yours makes Richard, of course, in a sense, right. The fear that he's expressing is not just an existential one. It has teeth. Yeah, for sure. Walk around feeling that way constantly and, and for good reason. 
I was just talking to someone the other day about how I don't remember the word and I don't remember the language, but it's a specific word in this in 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 a in another language for that feeling that you get that you when you realize you can never fully know or be known. Oh, aporia. That wasn't it because that that's like the the that's subtle the concept of understanding. Yeah, right, right. And that's um. You know, particularly when you are dedicated in some way to storytelling in your life. Right. Like, as I was at the time when I, you know, when I watched that episode, you know, I had been a professional writer by then for nine years and was writing criticism and was writing fiction and comics. And and the whole idea is you bring this thing out of yourself, right? And you you take it out and you, you, you kind of hand it over to the world and then you, you, you just move your hands away and you let go and people take it and they bring it to themselves and they put it in their own brains and you have no control over that, but you have made this connection in some way. The art lives between in the space between the two of you, but it bridges that space. And God, I mean, just the idea that it, that doesn't work, that it's bullshit, that that, right. that that fiction is predicated on a lie. Man, that is, I mean, I'm reeling from it now. And I, I heard this line 11 years ago. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I got up and walked away. And it stayed with me ever since. And sometimes when I... I'm feeling really low about my own work. You know, I'm just about to have my first uh, professionally published novel with a big company. And there are moments when I think the entire ethos of connection and sharing unusual experiences so that other people can see they aren't alone. What if it's nothing? Mm. What What if... It's just a book that people will either enjoy or they won't. And that's the end of it. And the thing is, we carry this fear with us. No matter how many times we've seen ev- evidence to the contrary, you know? Of course. It's, like, you know, it's like no matter how many times someone tells you that you're beautiful part of you is always going to be afraid you're not because it's not really about anything objective. It's, it's just a state of fear. Yeah. Shit, man. Like you, we met because you liked the writing that I did. And then I liked the writing that you did. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> and, and still we're here like completely poleaxed by this one line of dialogue about <laughs> right. how what, uh, the basis of our friendship is essentially impossible or illusory. <laughs> like that's how, that's the, that's the depth of this fear. I think that's how uh, f- fundamental it is that it's almost unfalsifiable. Yeah. There. God. <laughs> I've just never been able to shake it. No. And, you know, looking at the the landscape of um, new golden age television, let's say, 
Do you think that other major shows have wrestled with this issue uh, or this idea? In in because I kind of do. I kind of think that it is in its way uh, reflected in a lot of shows um, about like the need to connect and be honest with people and decent with people. And, and then the things that drive us away from that. Um, I think a lot of shows have wrestled with this, just not quite as directly. Yeah. I mean, certainly game of Thrones did with a number of its characters. Um, Daenerys and the Hound and Arya and Sansa are yeah. all sort of circling that central issue. That's probably the the biggest one that I can think of. Yeah, that's a great point because the, you know they'd had this core cast that was all there at Winterfell in the first episode, and then the like most of the rest of the series is them smashing that apart into smaller yeah. and smaller pieces yeah. that scatter all over the place. And as that happens, as that process occurs. Uh, the characters involved become more and more cynical and dangerous. Yeah, and yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and and I don't think I don't know that. I mean, I guess they kind of do in the end, but certainly those characters harbor a lot of doubt about whether there really is a connection worth having with other people. I personally think i mean game of thrones has such a such a unique and winning ending i i really like it quite a bit um me too one part that really makes it for me is that circle of people sitting around and you know chuckling at the idea of peasants choosing the king (laughs) and they're all people that we love you know they're they're it's it's Sansa and you know uh, Tyrion and all of these these beloved television characters who are all like that is disgusting. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, and then of course Sansa ascends to her own personal throne, but her siblings are gone again. She's completely alone, and Tyrion has has literally killed everyone who had any kind of connection to him Mm. or been complicit in the death. Yeah. It's really Jon Snow who winds up his, his story ultimately is one of connection. Like he retreats into a community and becomes, you know, member of that community number 57. And that's the life that he chooses for himself. Or it's kind of chosen for him, but but he accepts it. Yes, it feels it feels like the it feels like a good ending for him. It does, does. and it. I always felt like the person in Game of Thrones who is sort of most correct about what people need is probably Mance Raider. Interesting. This guy who says, like, haven't you ever for one fucking second stopped and thought about why you're expected to do what you're expected to do? It's a good what question. What if instead you went and loved someone? Is that enough? 
Is that enough? Yeah. That's the other. I mean, I think you and I made this connection when we did those episodes of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour about the new golden age of television. Like, I connected this Richard line directly with uh, Major Briggs Major saying, Major Garland Briggs from yeah, Twin Peaks saying, his, his greatest fear is the possibility that love is not enough. Yeah. And I, I think those those two lines are absolutely joined by a thread. Yeah. God, that's another one. You know, at the time that I, I first encountered that line by by Garland Briggs, who's played by Donna Davis, I was pretty young. I was watching Twin Peaks for the first time, and I was in sort of that that rough part in the middle of season two, where Lynch and and Frost aren't on board creatively and you know, there's enjoyable stuff. The cast is still the cast, but sure. by and large, it's sort of muddying water for its own sake. And that just cleaned my fucking clock. And it's- I feel like as I've, as I've grown older and gone through heartbreak and falling in love, I can see how true that line is. Yeah. And I can see, I feel, and maybe I'm flattering myself here, I can see past it. Because I think, ultimately, that there are forms of love we're taught to have that are not enough to live on. You know, the the nuclear family cannot really sustain healthy life Mm -hmm. on its own. (sighs) Romantic love is not really enough to get you through life. There are all these monolithic things that we are taught to structure our whole existence around. And in the end, it's not that they're evil or bad. It's just that they're not enough. And I think you can, you can see that in Richard. It was a character who is, who is disillusioned. Like that's the point of the line. Like he used to be an avid reader and his, his sister whom he loves still sends him books. Cause she knows that he, well, she, she knows that he likes to read. That's no longer the case for reasons that he explains in this line. And I just feel like what he went through in the Great War shattered that for him. Yeah. You know, th- that his sister's kindness is not enough, and he he has foreclosed on the idea of her falling in love or having a family or anything like that because of how he looks and yeah, I think that ties directly into what Major Briggs was was afraid of, that these sort of values don't, you know, they can't survive in the wild, so to speak. There are gulfs that can't be bridged. Right, right, right. Richard, you know, he's experienced traumatic separation from parts of his own body, from mm. his face, the the sort of seat of personhood. Yeah. Will he ever fully communicate with another human being in his, in his mind? Will he ever conceive of it that way? Or is everything that he says sort of linguistically crippled now? Right. Well, because he has to, just to function in the world, he has to wear a literal mask. Right. I mean, he's, he was inspired in part by the Phantom of the Opera, if I'm, Correct. Because it does have that shape to it. Yeah. And I know, because it was also inspired by real life. Like, I believe it was uh, 
Yeah, it was Howard common Co- practice at the time. Right. I, and I think the, the writer and producer Howard Corder, if I'm recalling correctly, saw an article somewhere about uh, this woman who was a sculptor who made those prosthetics for people after World War One. Yeah. His whole experience with other human beings at this point is mediated through a physical barrier that he has to attach to his own face. Right. Just to he be asked to separate himself so that he can even be around people. Yeah. They recoil from him now. And of course that would be just horrendously alienating for him. Right. There's such a distinct tenor to the feeling of knowing that someone is revolted by you. And to encounter that with total uniformity, to not even be safe from it with the people you're closest to and you trust the most, the only way you can survive is by telling yourself that there's no such thing as connection. Mm. That no one has what you don't have because it's fake and they made it up. Do you think that Richard at any point rethinks this idea or reconsiders this idea? Yeah, I do. and. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and and spoil parts of the end of the show here. So sure. I mean, we already spoiled, we already spoiled the end of game of Thrones for everybody. So yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Um, I think it's ultimately what gets him killed. Yeah. And what, what leads to his tragic shooting of chalky white's daughter by accident. And that I felt was such an incredibly bold choice by the show to show the the body count in the form of collateral damage that people like this inevitably leave in their wake. Richard mm-hmm. is not a surgical instrument. He's someone who thinks it's acceptable to murder other human beings. Right. And inevitably, someone is going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because or, I, I personally think that the, the, the show's emotional peak is uh, Margate Sands, which I believe is the finale of season or the penultimate episode of season three. It's one of the two. Right. Uh, Which involves Richard going on this, what can only be described as a kill crazy rampage. Yeah. It's like a, it's like he's sweeping a level in a first person shooter. It's unbelievable. It's one of the best action scenes I've ever seen. It's uh, God. It's so fucking good. And, uh, it ends with him rescuing Jimmy's son from a guy, a gangster who has a gun pointed at the kid's head. And the moment after he shoots this character, he runs and he hugs the little boy, Tommy. And I lost it. Yeah. I was just a gibbering. I don't know that I've ever cried so hard about anything. Uh, uh, fiction wise. I, I like, I just lost my fucking mind. I was so, it was so tender and it just provided you with this, this idea that like everything that you've just been through in the last five minutes of just ultra violence ended with this moment of human connection between this perfect killing machine and a little boy who he cared about, who he did feel a connection with. And so it was in a lot of ways, like it's the, the rejoinder to this particular scene that we've been talking about. And um, I think then you needed, if you're being honest about 
a person like Richard, you needed him to fuck up. And you needed him to kill someone who was innocent and didn't deserve it at all to really wrestle with the gravity of being a person who's killed 63 people and counting. Right. Uh, It was 63, you know, before Margate Saints, where he kills like 12 people in the space of a few minutes. And I think that mistake, that final shooting his hands shake, which is something we've never seen from him before. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's afraid of is as much killing again as it is that this could actually be the last time. And that if he does this and succeeds, he will get on a train and he will have to go face having a family and surviving. I can't imagine how frightening that is for someone who shut himself off so completely. It becomes his fantasy life only when he knows he's dying. Yep. When it's safe to embrace that idea, when it's safe Mm -hmm. to picture yourself on the family homestead with people who love you and accept you and you're whole again. I mean, you're literally whole again. He sees himself with his entire face. Right. He does not. In his fantasy, he does not return as he is. He returns as he was. Right. And as he wishes he could be. And I think that that wish is not something he could ever let himself feel when he was not dying. Man. Yeah. You know, the more times I've gone back to it, the more impressed I am with what Boardwalk Empire is doing. Because it's so different than the shows around it. You know, we've talked about this before, but so many of the big shows are about like, can a person change mm-hmm. and boardwalk empire really isn't about that. No. Yeah, you're right. But go it's, on. It's more like, can people connect? Can anything come of people being together? And that is just a fucking harrowing question. No pun intended. (laughs) Well, honestly, I think the pun was intended by the writers. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, But just this idea that all the, the show is so bleak. It's bleak in a way that other major prestige TV is not. Yeah. The connections in it end and there is no reconciliation. The things that the characters do to each other echo louder and louder over time. I mean, ultimately the entire show is about something that Nucky did as a young man in his late twenties or early thirties to a child that he gave a little girl to a pedophile who was a powerful man who could secure his future. And the rest of the show goes from there because that little girl is Jimmy's mother and Tommy's grandmother. And the whole show revolves around that central act of betrayal and violence. I love, I mean, I, I, I was so impressed with that. So impressed with that. Me too. But it, it just did not let this character off the hook simply because you and the writers have spent half a decade with him and now are fond of him, which is the way a lot of shows that I feel an enormous amount of affection for work. Yeah. You know, we, you brought this up the last time we talked, but 
Al Swearingen in Deadwood. Right. Like, the show warms up to him over time, and we in the audience, I think, warm up to him over time. Certainly, the writers warmed up to him over time, but he is still just an awfully abusive murderer and cheat and pimp and... Right, he's a man who goes around beating the shit out of women for basically reasons unrelated to them. Yeah. He didn't bat an eye at the idea of killing a child. Surely he has done so before. Yep. He's a terrible human being. And I, I do think that I love Deadwood. I sure. adore Deadwood. Me I'm too. like I'm gonna forward a big book about Deadwood this month. Oh, <laughs> um, that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm very hype about it. But nice. that the show gets sentimental about Al definitely takes things off the table for what it can and can't tackle. Mm-hmm. And Boardwalk Empire never gets sentimental about Nucky. Never. I think that's what that's what people's beef was it with was it in a lot of ways. That like Nucky didn't operate the way that these sort of uh difficult men protagonists were supposed to operate you know like i he, agree he, he 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 did not have this magnetism that wins you over with with exposure the way right. al swearingen does or tony soprano does or walter white does or don draper does and i was glad of that like you don't necessarily need to have this be the only food in your diet but it pays to have it sometimes and it absolutely does you know and I- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the central misery of Nucky's life is that he wanted that man's approval and patronage so that he could have a home and have a family and be his idea of a man, you know, because he's this person who is eternally running away from his childhood of extreme child abuse and abject poverty. And he doesn't even see that he has it and then he sells it. And he has this, this little girl, Jillian, who comes into his home and who his wife wants to keep. And he just doesn't see it. He doesn't see it at all. Yeah. And I think that happens over and over again with a lot of characters that there is this, I mean, look at Jillian herself. Like she was victimized. She grows up to become an abuser mm-hmm. and ultimately she is undone by seeking an honest human connection with another person in maybe the most devastating single incident and shot of the whole series. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. I, I rewatched all of that recently and, uh, yeah, she has this plot where Ron Livingston, the guy from fucking Office, office Space, space. Yep. plays a uh, sort of corporate middleman who's come to Atlantic City on business, and they have an affair and fall in love, and they get closer and closer, and he helps her kick her heroin dependency, and then he shoots a man in a panic during an altercation over a, a parking spot or something, and she tells him that she'll help him cover it up and that it's going to be okay. And when he won't stop freaking out, she tells him 
you know, listen, I've killed someone too. I did it because I needed money and I needed to be safe. And then he says, okay, cool. I'm with the Pinkerton detective agency. You're under arrest. And <laughs> it's ruinous. It is. Jesus. It's, she just like, her whole self implodes in that moment. And I think if I recall correctly, the camera kind of, you see this from above as she's just like, yeah, she splays herself along the staircase, staircase that they're on. Yeah. Trying to get away. Yeah. And it, it's not like she's trying to run for freedom. It's like she wants to be away from him. Yeah. Because what he's done is so monstrous. It's unforgivable. It really is. But she's the murderer. Right. You know? <laughs> right. She killed She killed an innocent guy. And yet in that moment, you feel like what he did was the the bigger violation. Because you, again, you want good things for these people. Like you want Jillian fucking Darmody to have some worthwhile thing in her life at all. Right. To just, for it to stop hurting her yeah. for one second. Which is, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of the reason that his crime feels so much worse than hers is that she is, and Gretchen Maul, the actress is so phenomenal with this. She is such an artificial person. She is so fake and phony. When she seduces the man that she eventually kills, it's so transparently a production. Yeah. And he's a fucking rube, you know? Yeah. When Ron Livingston's character seduces her, it feels real. And giving her something real is so painful because we get to see her be real for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's as if the show introduced this idea that people do not actually have a connection with each other. And then use that over and over and over again to be like, see, we fucking told you. God. And in the end... Who does thrive in the world of Boardwalk Empire? Well, it's all the real-life gangsters who, in fact, thrive no in that world. no to other yeah. human beings. It's Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel forming the fucking syndicate. Yeah. And, and creating a business, an actual empire that rivaled any industry in the United States at that time out of killing people. At bottom, that's what it was. Right. That's that's the stick that enforces the money engine of the mob. Yep. I mean, for Christ's sake, they set up something called Murder Incorporated. Yeah. They had like they're a not, des- a designated not great. Yeah, like ugh. Man. I I don't I don't even really know what else to say about like it it is um it's a really ruthless show. Yeah, and, and I say that at the same time as I, con- I continue to insist that it's like one of the most like richly sensual experiences the television has provided us in the last 20 years. I completely uh, agree. It's, yeah. it's one of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen yeah. visually and orally in terms of set design. And, and certainly the lighting is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. People like, I don't know if anyone who's gotten to this point in this episode has, has not actually seen Boardwalk Empire, but God, it is worth your time. Yeah. It is really worth your time. It's a, I would say that it's probably a top five show for me. 
I'm I'm doing the math in my head now. Twin Peaks, Sopranos, Mad Men, Deadwood. It might be number six for me. It's way up there. I think for me, it's uh, it's either three or four. I just. <sighs> and you know, in a lot of circles, we people would look at this askance, and they would say, "Boardwalk Empire." That also ran. Little, but Sean, this is the cross that we have to bear on our shoulders—the <laughs> awful burden of always being right. Being right, it is so difficult. That's really ultimately why we can never experience human connection. Yeah, because other people are wrong more frequently than we are. Right. It's like being Ace Rothstein, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the guy from Casino. I really do feel like Ace Rothstein most of the time. So, <laughs> honestly, I mean, yeah, I get it. There's another man who is extremely good at one thing and also fucking miserable. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that's a good note to leave things on. You think? Yeah, I think so too. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this, the first episode of Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. I've been Sean T. Collins. And I've been Gretchen Felker-Martin. Take care, everybody. Good night.